Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember as a young boy making an impact on you? Domino's. Really? Yeah, I had a lot of delivery food when I was a kid. It's not a mistake that I ended up creating Grubhub. But like we were on a first name basis with the Domino's driver. Because my mom was, she's a single mom with like two jobs. We, she just didn't have any time to cook. Are you still a pizza fanatic? Heck yeah, I don't I don't order from chains though. I only order from independent restaurants, but yes, I still love pizza. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Mike Evans, the founder of Grubhub, the multi-million dollar online food delivery company. Mike left the company he founded shortly after it successfully went public in 2014. He then promptly took his recumbent bike to Virginia Beach and cycled 4,000 miles all across America, ending at the coast of Oregon. Mike is working on a second startup, Fixer.com, which he began in 2017. Mike and his team at Fixer are building a handy person business that looks a lot like Grubhub. Easy online ordering, good communication, and great quality control. All this while creating a full-time skilled workforce of tradespeople. Mike has recently published his first book, Hangry, A Startup Journey, which I have just read cover to cover and absolutely loved. We'll talk about this deeply personal book, which includes insights, stories, and ramblings from his post-Grubhub IPO cross-country bike trip. This is my conversation with a kid from small-town Georgia who has not one but two degrees from MIT. Here's Mike Evans. Mike, welcome to the CMO Podcast, and congratulations on your first book. I read in your epilogue that you said it was more difficult to get a book published than to build a multi-billion dollar business. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, I've done both. So the book, Hangry, <laughs> it's, about, uh, it's about just the emotional journey and the experience of creating a startup from nothing and taking it all the way through the IPO. That was Grubhub. And then I wrote a book about it, Hangry, and literally... It's it is harder to get a book published. It's just it's just a, there's a lot of gatekeepers. There's a lot of um, you have to go through a lot of uh, rejection to get a book mm-hmm. to a publisher that, that will actually then buy the book and, and get it get it out to the world. I've done two of them. They were both really hard. And the title is the one that I think always takes the most time and thought. And you got to get that right or it goes nowhere. So tell us about your title. Yeah. So Hangry, uh, a startup journey. It's. The idea behind it is that uh, I start out as just sort of cranky and annoyed at the whole delivery experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, that crankiness turns into uh, motivation to actually do something about it. And so that's sort of the, one of the big differences between an entrepreneur and a, just a miserable, grumpy person is that the entrepreneur chooses to do something about it. Uh, and so I did. So I started writing a delivery guide. And uh, then I added online ordering and, and grew it pretty big. I got, I got pretty big. It got to 70,000 restaurants and had an IPO. But it started with this idea that uh, the world was broken in some way that I thought I could fix. Mm-hmm. And so 
the the book explores sort of the emotional experience, what it's like to just go through that. Uh, the the false starts, the challenges, the relationships, like all of the things that are hard and and great about doing a startup. And so that's what the that's where the title comes mm-hmm. from. So why did you want to write this book on top of a pretty full life right now? Why this book and why now? It's true. I do have a busy life. <laughs> and, uh, and, and also the pandemic happened at the same time I was writing yeah. a book, which uh, I couldn't have planned for that one way or the other. I will say, let's not do that again if we can help it. Uh, yeah, w- but the reasoning behind the book was that um, what I wanted to get out of it is there's, there's a big message in the book, which is, uh, be careful what you ask for, that that businesses are huge levers for social change, whether you want them to be or not. And so rather than have that be implicit, make it expl- explicit, uh, put some effort towards thinking about how you want to change the world to make it a better place. And so if I can convince 10 people to to think about that as they work in their careers, whether that's in the startup world or corporate America or 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 what small business or whatever uh just thinking about that being intentional about that is incredibly important also i think it's pretty darn funny i was trying to make it an entertaining and it was piece of art yeah it it was no i I really enjoyed it uh before we get into that the book's out there and it's been out there about not even a month actually so you talked about writing the book as an emotional journey or, or starting a business is an emotional journey. You wrote about that in the book. It's done. It's out in the market. You're getting some reactions. How? What's that feeling like? I love it. You know, there's this concept of the death of the author, which is that once you create a, create a piece of art and you put it out there, it's out of your control. And that's only half of created creation is only half of the artistic experience. The other half of it is how people interpret and filter and react to it. And there have been some very surprising reactions to it. People have gotten things out of the book that I was like, I didn't even know I wrote that in there. But it triggers something because of their their filter or their filters or their experiences or their origins or whatever. And hearing that is it's like the second piece of like the experience of creating something. Uh, but it's the one that takes actually a lot less effort. All I have to do is be open to it and listen mm-hmm. and experience that with people. It's a joy. It's an absolute joy to hear the unexpected things that people take out of the book. Now, I know it's only been out a few weeks, so it's kind of anecdotal. You're getting some reactions. What's the most surprising or most uplifting reaction you've gotten so far? Um, I talk a little bit in the book about the difference between quitting and giving up and how we assign a stigma to the idea of quitting, even though sometimes uh, our efforts are not taking us towards the goals that we want them. We want to go towards and that that stigma stigma shouldn't be there and that that while it does take grit to do hard things. And I'm not I'm not advocating not having that grit. Uh, It also takes courage to move on from things that aren't working for us. And I've had a few people say, like, you're right. I'm I'm going to start I'm going to start this thing that I've been thinking about doing. I'm going to quit my job and start this thing. And I've had a few people say this thing I'm working on is not working. I'm going to try something different. And both of those have been really satisfying to hear people actually say that they're they're internalizing some of the messages in the book and, and making thoughtful decisions about their lives. What's your process for deciding kind of when to move on, when to give up, when to uh, put something to bed? So I do that personally every day in Mm. for work, especially every day. I ask myself, are the things we're working on working? Are we are we getting there? Is is our marketing plan like working? Are we actually acquiring customers? Are we is the product? Does the product do people like it? 
Is the effort people are putting towards the things that we're trying to work on? Is it working? And so I do that on a daily basis. I try not to to um, sub- subject my team to a <laughs> daily questioning of are we working on the right thing? That's too frequent. It would feel very twitchy. But um, probably once every other week, we have a pretty serious conversation about whether or not we're tracking towards our goals. Uh, and um, and then every certainly every year we have an annual like goals conversation where we ask ourselves, what's the goal? What did did it work? Did what we do this this year work? And what's our goal going to be next year to accomplish the mission of the business? I also do that in my personal in personal spheres and in, in my relationships and things like that. And that's a thing that I think a lot of people go through. Are these am I am I investing enough in these friendships that I care about? Are my friends investing in me? Um, there's got to be some staying power with some of those things. You don't just like turn out friendships on a whim. But I think evaluating those kind of things leads towards a more, I don't know if it's happy, but certainly a more fulfilled life. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now, I want to get to the management gems, and there's a few of them. And what I'd like to do on this one, Mike, is just share it and have you give us some context and riff on it a little bit. And and the first one is, and I love this one. And I'm quoting you or sort of paraphrasing you through these. First one is, I was successful because I had a personal definition of success, not someone else's definition of success. So please speak of that. Yeah, I so I took a business and I took it through the IPO and through an IPO. Right. And I made a pile of cash when I did that, a really big pile of cash. And uh, and people say I was successful because I had an IPO. And people said like, I was successful because I made a bunch of money. I don't think either of those things are true. I I was successful because I helped 80,000 independent restaurants compete against big chains and kept some uniqueness and individuality within the restaurant industry alive during the housing crisis and during a time when pressure was really strong for people to just go use online ordering at Domino's, for example. And so that's why I think I was successful. And when I talk to people about defining success personally, I talk about this idea that like everyone will define success for you and your parents, your teachers, your church, your government, your kids, like everybody, your friends. And it's really important to say, that's fine. All of you people can have an opinion, but I'm going to define this for myself. And ideally, a personal definition of success is unique enough that people disagree with you. That when you say it, like when I say I wanted to help 80,000 independent restaurants um, compete against big chains. People look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, that's not right. That's not why you're successful. You can't really believe that. That means I'm onto something. If people don't agree with it, it means it's unique enough that it's real. It's not the white picket fence and 2.4 kids, which if that's what you want, if it's what you truly want, great. But if you just accept that definition from other people, it's it can be really hard to achieve someone else's definition of success. Maybe impossible. So yeah, that's the main theme of the book. Yeah. And, you know, and it seemed to change for you, too. Right. When you just started it, you said, hey, you know, I want to pay off my student loans, create something here. And it just and you you take us through this in your storytelling. 
but you kept sort of stepping back and saying, what are we really trying to do here? What am I trying to do here? Where, where is my impact? So could you talk a bit about that? Because it did morph. And I think, and you took some of that thinking right into what you're doing today. Uh, but I'd like you to speak about this area of personal impact, purpose, we often call it, and how that did sort of change for you as you spent more time with this startup that you founded back in the early 2000s? So I think, I think the word success implies something bigger than just a goal. It's, it's like a bunch of goals that take 20, 30, 40 years to, to hit the aggregate of all of them. And something that big is by its nature, very hard. It's difficult and hard things change us as you, as you start to approach a definition of success, as you start to knock down some of those goals and hit some of those milestones. You're a different person as a result of doing the hard work than when you started. And so I think it's the nature of a hard, challenging, big goal or set of goals in your life that as you approach them, the goalposts move. That you're like, that. I didn't think big enough. I got to think bigger. Now, if mm -hmm. I went back to 23-year-old Mike and said, you know, you really need to think about changing an industry. 23-year-old Mike be like, okay, boomer. Like, uh, yeah. I've got 260 grand in school debt. I'll think about that later. And so there is some friction here. Like, it, it's the nature of urgency and immediacy that you can't think about big things. But yeah, I, I think this, I think the goalpost should move. And I think that's okay. I think we should level up the challenge that we're, that we're seeking out as, as we hit those goals. Second management gem, hard work can be a competitive differentiator. Oh my gosh. I've had so many venture capitalists look at my businesses, both the first one and even more so the second one and say, that's too hard. Like it's too complex. Like, what are you doing? Like, I want to invest in like this crypto blockchain data mining AI thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, buzzword bingo. Like, give me a break. <laughs> and that but, didn't work out so well. <laughs> I, it, do, it never does. That's the thing. Yeah. It works out like about the same frequency as a lottery ticket does. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, when I started, when I launched San Francisco for Grubhub, I, I went and picked up all the menus for the city. I picked up every, physically went to every restaurant, not every restaurant, most restaurants in the city in the Bay Area and picked up all the menus so that I would I could scan them, put them online. So there was value for customers before I signed anyone up for online ordering. And that hard work, it was not scalable. It was not easy to copy. I had this data that like nobody else had. Um, it was a huge advantage. And, and all of these competitive advantages decay over time. People can always copy what you do. Uh, but if you're willing to continue innovating and willing to continue putting the hard work in and willing to quit the things that aren't working, which is really hard to do, mm -hmm. um, you stay ahead of the curve. I and mean, that's why Grubhub was a better product for 12 years going into the IPO and why we beat all of our competitors. Your story about collecting the menus in San Francisco is a is a good part of the, the whole book's good, but it was especially good. And the, you had a friend who joined you. <laughs> he just he was so wiped out, so hungry, so, so tired. Yeah, it, it, it's a good story. And you got rained on. I think you went in. You were cold. You went in and had some Chinese food. It's yeah. it's it, it was lovely. Yeah, my buddy Ryan, who was in that group, you know, I'm still friends with him, and he has his own startup. Now that he started in San Francisco, a biomedical technology company, oh. and uh, he he still talks sometimes about the like the lesson of like having grit and doing the hard things, which is weird because I, I in the book I literally talk about quit the things that aren't working, 
But that goes hand in hand with this idea of work really hard before, you know, one way or the mm-hmm. other, like you, it's hard. It's hard to put that much effort into something and then see it not work and then just switch to something else. I mean, it's easy to get burnt out if you, if you try that too many times. Third management gem, there are no silver bullets in marketing. Building a consumer brand takes time and money. Yeah, this is a thing that, again, a lot of investors that I talk to will talk about just throwing money at the problem of building a brand. And it, it does take money, but it takes money and time. And often I'll be in investor conversations or in a board meeting or just talking with other business people. And they're like, well, why don't you just and then something comes after that. Some why don't you just like uh, put up put put up billboards in the area that you're that you're trying to work in and everybody will see it. And I'm like, you know, the greatest lie in any movie ever was if you build it, they will come from Field of Dreams. It's false. People will not just find your product magically if you don't advertise it. And a lot of VCs don't necessarily do, and a lot of investors aren't really all that versed in consumer, like building a consumer brand and getting consumer adoption. And it simply takes time. You have to hit people five, six, seven times with exposing them to ideas or to your brand or your product before a lot of them will convert. And getting that sort of ubiquity in people's experiences, it it's easier than it once was because you have like retargeting and cookies and things where you can actually go like get, get a, get a focused effort on individuals to try and try and use your product. But it takes a broad approach of a lot of different ideas. And, um, and there's just no shortcuts. I haven't ever found a shortcut. There's a lot of debate in our industry about performance marketing and the tension with brand marketing, if you will. Right. And I know it's kind of a weird way to think about things because performance marketing should build a brand and brand building should build performance. But how did you think about that as you built Grubhub? I mean, you you built a very recognizable brand in a very short period of time that had attributes, that had fans, that had loyalty, you know, so you kind of did it. So what's your counsel? How, how did you drive that? How did you think about the the balance between performance and brand marketing, if you will. I, it's funny because I'm doing it again, right? I've got this company called Fixer and we're trying mm-hmm. to become a national handy person brand. Uh, and we're on our way, but we're like we're five years in and we still got another 15 years to go, right? So um, it's hard to sum all this up in just a couple of things. One thing I would say is absolutely critical is that the the product function at an organization and the marketing function at an organization cannot be two separate things. That um, the thing that you deliver to customers, the value that you create and deliver to customers has to be so good, like so good. It has to be 10 times better than the alternatives to give marketing something to talk about authentically about how good it is. And, you know, one thing that's common to both performance and brand marketing is that you end up with eyeballs on a website, right? And those eyeballs have to turn into transactions. And so the conversion rate of the website, the, the efficiency with which it turns people who are interested into into customers is absolutely essential for both of those things. And so I start with this idea of like, start with the product, start with the technical fundamentals around conversion and SEO and landing pages, because th- those matter regardless whether you're organic or repeat or referral or brands or direct like performance. In all of those cases, the conversion rate matters. The The, the speed with which the pages load matter. Right. Like you have to have a fast website, you know, the 
the messaging, the authenticity of the leaders in the organization, their social platform, like social media platforms, like all it all has to work together, which is sort of a, a daunting monolithic task. But it it goes into this idea of there's no silver bullets in marketing because the answer to what is it brand or is it performance marketing turns out yes is the answer. You have to do both. You can't just pick one. Like you have to do it. You have to do it all if you really want to create a national brand from scratch. You, there's no shortcuts. You have to do it all. Um, and it has to be in, t- in conjunction with a product organization. How intentional did you think about brand in the early days? I mean, did you think like I've got to invest in uh, this brand name that has attributes and, and uh, that reflects who we are as a culture and company? I mean, how, how did that evolve as you grew it? So I am not a graphic designer. Uh, and so I made the first logo for the business and it was just so obviously horrible that I knew I had to do something better. Uh, and so, I mean, the first employee I hired was a graphic designer. Now I, I hired them to do a lot of the stuff with the menus, but they also, Jack also made the first logo you know, he built the fundamentals of the brand first. He was the, he and Mandy Pekin, who we hired as our first head of, head of marketing, you know, the brand book that they created was really thoughtful. Um, I, you may, most people probably don't remember the early Grubhub brand, but it was, um, it was all paper cutouts that like moved around on a page. There were like little animations and oh my God, I love this brand. I loved it. I loved everything about it. it. Everything about it was designed to create an emotional response. It had nothing to do with the product. It was about emotional, uh, invest investment from customers. And you know, we would go and test these ad the ad uh, executions, we test them at the Merchandise Mart in Chicago. We would just see if people would either get angry or laugh. That's the only two things we cared about. I don't care if you know what the product is. Did you have an emotional reaction to our ads? And, and that was the brand that we built originally. Now, after I left, the, the brand shifted towards a much more adult, older demographic. And I have no idea whether that worked or not. I wasn't there at the company as that happened. I mean, I, I felt like my, my baby had, had, had sort of grown up and I was sad about it. But um, I guess to answer your question more directly, like a lot, we thought about brand investment a lot. There's no point in spending a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million dollars on ad executions for a brand that's poorly defined. And we ultimately ended up to the point where we did, we did several, I think we did two Super Bowl ads. And which is like the, it's like the, the grandpappy of all marketing executions, right? Like it's as big as you get. Uh, they did not work. Like the huge amount of traffic, very little amount of like brand loyalty. Why was that? Do you think? Why didn't they convert? They just weren't. I think, I think they were too brand oriented and not performance enough oriented. Yeah. You kind of have to, you kind of have to have a mix of both. And they were like a one and done sort of like mm-hmm. you get 6 million visitors to your website. And like 3,000 of them placed an order. Also, everybody had already eaten. Like our, our, an ads, yeah. our ads worked when people were hungry. So they yeah. worked on the train when people were ho- going home from work. Uh, not at the end of a Super Bowl when everybody's full on chicken wings already. <laughs> like, Yeah, this is why media placement, obviously in context, is very important. So, yeah. hey, uh, next jam, and you've, you've already gone here, but I think it needs to be drawn out because it's also a very big theme in your life and in your book. Value for customers is priority one, two, and three. Yeah, to the point where um, repeat purchases, like the the customer loyalty and frequency, uh, which are two different things and I think sometimes get lumped together. Um, that's it. That's the thing that matters for your company. And so the product has to be good enough to keep people. 
And the marketing, the messaging, the branding needs to underline that value in the both in the first interaction, but then in the in the repeat um, sort of engagements that you have with the customer. So again, this is where the product and the marketing team, the transparency between the two of those and the authenticity of those things has to be 100%. People see through disingenuous marketing really easily these days. And um, your, your product just has to keep customers. Like if, if you're trying to sell toothpaste and the toothpaste tastes bad, no amount of marketing is going to make that work for you, right? So uh, the product just has to work. It has to be great. It has to be really great. Yeah, I worked many years at PNG. That was a fundamental. One of the things that was a big advantage for Grubhub, uh, we weren't, we didn't start in Silicon Valley. We started in Chicago, and so mm-hmm. Unilever and 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 PNG and Kraft and like a lot have big offices here. Some of them have headquarters here, so the access to marketing talent in Chicago yeah. was really great. And so we we got amazing professionals very much earlier than most startups would um, in the Valley or or elsewhere. This value for customers as a value of the company. I mean, you did this at Grubhub. You're now with Fixer. How do you, as the CEO, the founder, be sure that that value is inculcated, that is talked about, that is rewarded, that is hired for? So how do you keep that really living and vibrant in your culture? Yeah, there's a lot of stakeholders. There's there's the customer there's the fixers, the actual full-time employees who do the handy person work. There's the shareholders and then there's the office workers. I mean, there's a lot of stakeholders. And so one of the things we do is we talk about all of those things frequently. Like once a month, we talk about is the balance of the value that's going to each of these sta- stakeholders correct? Um, but we went a step further. We actually created what's called a public benefit corporation where our corporate charter um, puts the value to our employees, the, to the fixers, to the actual tradespeople doing the work, is on is on equal footing with the value to shareholders, which is a very weird corporate structure. Almost every other corporate structure exists. A company exists to create value for shareholders. So we we went so far as to develop all the way into the DNA of the company that the value has to be for the tradespeople, not just for the sh- shareholders. Um, and it's by taking care of the fixers taking care of the tradespeople that we actually drive value to the customers like if they're if they're well trained and if they work safely and if they want to stay at the business and are highly retained and they're excited about their work like that is the that's actually the product we have in customers homes is a is a handy person who's happy at their happy and skilled and wants to be at the company that they're at if we pull that off then they can fix the toilet very well like they can fix the drywall it's a juggling act because we also have to, um, at the very least, we have to not burn cash, like at least have to be break even. But actually, we have to turn a profit. Um, as a startup, we have access to investment capital, so we don't have to create profit right away, but we have to be on the path to making it. And figuring out the balance between those things, getting the pricing correct, making sure that people like the product and come back again and again, like it's, it's a constant juggling act. It takes a lot of little course corrections. Um, to sort of drive towards that, that sort of end goal over the course of a seven, eight year time frame, It takes a long time to build something like this. This is the last management gem and it's the way you ended the book. And here is the gem. You can just start, make the thing, sell a customer, start. I think that 
all of the things that you can learn about business, everything about marketing and sales and product and technology and legal and regulation, all the things that you can do in aggregate yield 49% of success. 51, the other 51% is selling the first customer. You have to go from it being an idea. The worst is you have to go from an idea to at least a hobby, but it has to go from a hobby to a business by selling a customer, asking people if they they would buy a product, which is sort of usually the way startups start with, with this idea of market research. Uh, and this is also how things in big companies, they start with market research, is useless. It's totally useless. It has zero value because everybody will say they would buy a product. Very few people actually take cash out and spend money on it. And so market research should be paired with the idea of it costs the person you're asking actual dollars so they commit with their wallet and then you know if you have a product that works and that's that's the idea behind this sell the product first that is that is the only market research that's valuable which is probably blasphemy within P&G and Unilever but. no no it's absolutely spot on <laughs> a huge really? difference you're right you know people actually people and people usually don't say what they really think you have to understand that when you do research so it you have to get it to behavior and people parting with something that's important to them to receive something back. And that's what you did. And I, and the story about your first customer is a great one in the book. And it was kind of a, you know, an aha moment for you. Hey, someone's paying for this. We have something here. I, the other thing that really surprised me about sales was the product had to be good, but actually the sale was relational that I asked mm-hmm. people to take a chance on me. And yep. that's the thing that converted my first few sales. The repeat purchase, the, the second purchase had a lot more to do with how good the product was than than the relationship. Um, but it, these all, all these things go hand in hand. Mike, you exhibit a lot of self-awareness in this book, and I would even say vulnerability. Right. You talk about how discontent drives you, how you can sometimes be assholey. I think that's the word you use. <laughs> that's, uh, that's true. <laughs> how being free is really important to you. So I'd like, just like to ask, have you always been self-aware or was there something about this book that was a bit cathartic for you? Uh, I think it's a journey. I mean, knowing oneself is challenging and it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of signposts. Also, we change. And so mm-hmm. you can't stop learning about, uh, about what motivates you and what, and why you react towards people. Why do I get, why do we get frustrated when customers don't have a good experience. Uh, it's it's important for me to know that. It's also, by the way, a really good characteristic in a business leader to get frustrated when mm-hmm. customers don't have a good experience. And um, you know, early on, I was you know, I was twenty seven. I was employing a lot of people at that point, twenty eight, and people treated me like people treated me like the boss. But they but but I had to like deal with these issues of like sometimes people didn't respect me. But that it didn't matter. It didn't, wasn't in line with my goals to be respected. I wanted, I wanted to like get the company to the next level, and so it required a lot of learning about myself. I'm still doing it. I still mess up. Um, you know, I said in a couple other podcasts that therapy is really important, and I, it's weird. I get this reaction from people who are like, "Not everybody's crazy," and I'm like, "What does that have to do with what I said?" <laughs> like, therapy is important because knowing yourself and your motivations and why you do things helps you helps you exercise intentionality and explicit control over where you're headed. Like it has nothing to do with being crazy. It has to do with aligning 
me being a person I want to be with my goals. And so I, it's an on, it's a journey. It's not a dense, it's a journey and a destination, I guess, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm still on that, on that path right now. What did you learn most about yourself in the creation of this book? Um, I learned a lot about, um, in retrospect, what my emotions were as I was going through things. Cause it took a lot of research to go back and recall the exact specific things that I did and the events that I share. And I had to look at notes and emails and things like that. and had to re-experience some of those things and be like, Oh, I've got some stuff I got to think about here about that. I forgot that I had gone through. Um, I forgot how hard it was. I literally, by the time I got to the IPO, I was like, yeah, I did A, B, and C. And then I started this business. And then I went back and really thought about it, especially in conjunction with creating a new business. I was like, oh, this was all way harder than I originally thought. Creating a brand from nothing is way harder than like I sort of gave credence to towards during the, as I was going through the IPO process. Um, and, and that's all of that's not emotionally neutral. Like I got, there were high highs and low lows. And I think that's actually a sign of a, of an engaged leader when they get emotional about things. Um, emotionless leadership is not like a good thing necessarily. People who don't care about what they're doing. I don't think they can really have empathy for employees and for customers. Like you got to care. You got to be hangry as I was uh, to really be effective. You've already gone to this space, but you founded this second company about five years ago, Fixer.com, and you've already talked about it. But I'd like you to reflect a little bit more on the birth of that company. You did it several years after you left Grubhub. And talk about the catalyst for that. Talk a bit about the evolution of that company and how it is similar or different from your Grubhub experience. The second time around, I wanted to create a company that had um, that was similar in some ways to the first one I did. So I could just lean on some of the things I had already mm-hmm. learned. Uh, but that was really impactful in the, in, from a social impact perspective. And I wanted to find a business model where the thing that we create for customers and the value we create for the community we exist in can't be divorced. That they're not in conflict, that I'm not choosing between one or the other, but that the two work in tandem with each other. Really, where we landed on was this this issue of there are not enough tradespeople left, and there are, and there are not enough being trained, and that really plays out in the home where it's impossible to get somebody to show up for two hours and do quality work. It's it's possible to pay somebody for forty hours to show up, and they will show up maybe on the day that they say they will, and the quality of the work they do is going to be great, but it can be really hard to to just book somebody. And so I thought, well, what we need to do is we need to build an easily accessible, online accessible consumer brand around a handy person space. But instead of what we did at Grubhub, where we just worked with restaurants, we're going to train people from scratch and employ them as W-2 employees and do this on a national scale. And so that's the business we set out to start. It turns out that educate, educating people is like a whole thing. <laughs> like there's an entire like 5 million people or 10 million people in this country that do that for a living. And that starting from scratch without any knowledge was uh, was daunting to say the least it took a lot of engaging with experts to make that happen build a training program build a training center figure out how to make on the job training ha- work in the home in a way that customers really appreciated um and but and then we had to build all the technical infrastructure around communication and scheduling and billing and all of that stuff uh so we did it it took us a solid five years to build all of the infrastructure and the training and all of that it's working great uh 
I mean, we've done 40,000 jobs in people's homes. Um, we have really high repeat purchase rates. A lot of people use this frequently. People use this refer us. But maybe more to the point, the tradespeople who typically were hiring people who were a cashier at Target or Whole Foods or something like that and want to want to upgrade from a retail position to a career. And we can give them a lot of economic mobility by just teaching them skills and then giving them reps in people's homes. And so it's a great customer experience because people are really engaged. Um, they love what they're doing. They're they're excited about their economic like mobility, about being able to earn more very quickly as they join the answer the trades. And it's great for our tradespeople because the pay is just so much better than what you can make in retail or in, in uh, quick service, fast food or whatever. So it's working like there's no conflict between the like social impact and the and the value we bring for, for customers. But it's been hard. I mean, a W2 model is, has all sorts of challenges associated with it. A training program is difficult to do. The technical infrastructure wasn't easy to build. Um, I think the hard work is a competitive differentiator, though. So, yeah, it's just are. it's hard. It's gonna be hard yep. for somebody to catch up to us. We're like we're so far out of the gate by this point. It's just gonna be hard. How many cities are you in now, Mike? We're in five. Uh, Chicago. Seattle, Denver, Dallas, and Phoenix. And we're opening San Francisco and LA this year. Congratulations. It's a beautiful business model. What's been the major learning for you in these five years? I mean, you talked about it takes time. You had to build the infrastructure. Uh, but what's for you as a leader, what's been your biggest learning? Um, I think it's been challenging to experience that people are both more and less loyal than you expect. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is that people have really responded very positively to the economic mobility um, and the opportunities that we're creating. Uh, but that does not get me off the hook for creating, for solving problems in the workplace. Like I can't create economic mobility for people and then not think about safety in terms of like how we move ladders around. You wouldn't think that you'd have to train people on how to use ladders, but it turns out from a worker, like a worker safety perspective, ladders are the things that cause the most injuries on job sites by like a wide margin, like how you carry them, how you store them, where you stand on them. They all matter. It's so like things like that. It's understandable in retrospect, but like our safety program has to be great for people to be loyal to the company. And so that, that when I say that it, it, it's both easier in terms of um, people would like to stick around, but harder in the sense that like, you can never drop the ball on making people's work experience a better experience. Um, and you, you, there's a, there's like a what have you done for me lately element to it. Like you have to keep improving. Um, and that's been the big learning this time around with the W2 employee workforce. Well, you're building two great brands. You haven't really worked in a super large company, right? Your first job was in a medium sized company. But I'd like you to talk to all of our listeners out there who many of them work on their great brands of the world. So I'd like you to talk to them about what do you feel that most brand builders get right and what do they, maybe more importantly, what do they get wrong? I think most at, at well, so Grubhub at the time I left was like 4,500 people at the company. So I guess that's medium-ish, mm -hmm. medium-large. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It felt real big to me. But uh, I think that that company continues, did and continues, and a lot of other companies are really good at understanding sort of the the multi-channel nature of trying to approach customers that 
that this idea there's no several bullets. Anybody who's been marketing for a little while understands this, that there's not some magical book billboard or magical TV spot or Super Bowl ad that's going to change the trajectory of the company. It takes consistent pressure over time across multiple channels. And I think that that's what a lot of people get right. I think that a lot of people forget that the only thing that matters in marketing is emotion. That's the only thing that matters. It does not matter what your product does and explaining the details of it. Nobody gives a shit. It's very easy to start talking about the features and the benefits and the things like that. But honestly, just make somebody laugh. Like that's, that's it. Like Geico commercials, they make you laugh, right? Like they happen to get the, you know, say 15%, 15 minutes or whatever their line is that sticks in your brain, but it's because you laugh at so many of their damn commercials. Now I actually yeah. don't know if it works. I haven't looked to see if like their market share is uh, actually doing well compared to, I know else. some people there. It does work. I, well, so they got it right. Yeah. <laughs> do, yeah. do what Geico does. Get a, get a gecko. <laughs> there's our marketing advice but listen i want to move to the creative brief to end out this wonderful discussion and my first question is what's the first brand you remember as a young boy making an impact on you yeah domino's (laughs) made a pretty strong impact man really yeah i had a lot of delivery food when i was a kid it's not a mistake that i ended up creating grubhub but like we were on a first name basis with domino's driver because my mom was she's a single mom with like two jobs which she doesn't have any time to cook and so uh yeah, that was one that made a big, big impact on me. You know, another one that made a big impact on me as I started making my first purchase decisions as I went to college was Timberland. I just remember thinking that their sort of like environmental approach and uh, the quality of their product was just top notch. And I was such a like brand ambassador for them without you know not being paid for it. Uh, and Patagonia has done something similar as I've mm-hmm. gotten older. Um yeah, those are probably the three that stick out. Are you still a pizza fanatic? Heck yeah, I don't. I don't order from chains though. I only order <laughs> from independent restaurants. But yes, I still love pizza. Chicago or Detroit style? Yes, there's like 14 yes. different cuisines within all pizza. of them. <laughs> yeah, I love Detroit. I love a good pan Detroit pizza. I love New York pizza. You can fold it. I love Chicago pizza. You have to eat with a knife. It's, I love it. Love it all. Now, after Grubhub went public. You rode your recumbent bike across America, ocean to ocean. Is this still a passion for you, bike riding? Yeah, I do still love uh, uh, cycling and and especially bike bike packing, uh, as we call it. And my wife loves it too. She's actually we've done a, we did a bike ride across Austria for our twentieth anniversary, and she really enjoyed it. Uh, and so we're hoping to take our daughter on some longer trips, uh, probably like a week long, not like three months long. Uh, That's a good now start. That she's seven. Yeah, I love it. Your ride that you describe in the book, and I love how it's structured. You talk about the Grubhub experience and the bike ride. You go back and forth, and it's very fresh. But it, the, the ride seemed to renew your love for this country of ours. I had this experience when I was like, I remember it was in a town. I think it was in, it was either in Kansas or Missouri. And someone at, at like a diner was like, oh, you're going to such and such town. It was like two towns over. And they're like, oh, those people are all crazy. And I and I got but the but the net like one town over those people, they were okay. But two towns over, they were crazy and three towns. Forget it. And in every town I got to, they talk about the two towns on either side about how how those people were crazy drivers or or you had to be watch out for yourself, you know, like make sure not to leave yourself in your tent. And there was something really instructive about how people were so kind and welcoming 
and generous with me when I was with them face to face and they were with their neighbors. But as soon as you got 50 miles outside of town limits, those are the others. Those are the people. Those are the the aliens, the others, the, the enemy. And it just it just really struck me how when you actually go to every place in the United States, the people are kind. And this observation that people have that that are in other places are not kind is false. They're all wrong about their about their the, the people 50 miles away. And it, it just every single time it was different in different towns. Some people I got like, you know, a cute dog, like was it where they I could hang out with their dog and some people gave me food. Some people gave me shelter. And but there was always some graciousness and kindness that people had. And uh, and sort of the distinction between big town and, you know, Wall Street and Main Street went away for me. And I was like, man, just everybody, actually, everybody's just wonderful. They're all just wonderful people. Of course, of course, it made me love it. Lo- it made me love the whole the whole country for sure. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in passing in the book that you want to sail around the world. Is that is that real? Yeah, I sailed a boat from France to uh to Chicago. And, and so I've about done about a quarter of the trip. I have to sail it back out from the great lakes and, and continue the trip. So that's for the sequel. That's for the book where I talk about, uh, uh, I'll talk about fixer and then my sort of circumnavigation of the globe. That's going to be the sequel to hangry for sure. I'll It'll buy probably it. be called broken or something like that. <laughs> right. But like, uh, yes, that's currently happening. That's a few years off. I think In your stages, book about fixer. it yes. takes like two years to do the whole thing. So it's yeah. going to take like a decade to do it. You talk about many mentors in this book. Um, who has been the most consequential business mentor in your life? Um, I would say the the biggest impact on me was Chuck Templeton, who um, who founded Open Table and was on our board. It's still we're still good friends. We hang out frequently, uh, as frequently as you can, living in two different places with a pandemic in the middle. <laughs> but um, didn't yeah, he ride? Part, he, didn't he come and join you for a few days on the ride? He did. He joined me yeah. for like the 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 hardest part of the Rockies, and he's just ridiculously good shape so he, he he's i couldn't believe it after i had written two thousand miles he could keep up with me but uh yeah yeah we still hang out sometimes who has been the most inspirational person in your life i mean it's gonna sound cliche but my mom i mean obviously she's mm-hmm. she's the hardest worker i've ever met and um and she just didn't take a lot of shit so uh it wasn't like she was just completely self-sacrificial she she was she was self-sacrificial and also effective at raising four kids. And I don't know how she pulled it off by herself. I've got one kid and I'm married. And like, I don't know how my mom did this by herself with four, four kids. It's a lot of work. What do you think is the characteristic of your mother's that you most embody? I think grit. I think um, mm-hmm. when you're working on something, like succeed, like get, get through it. I mean, I added this thing of if it's not working, quit. Um, she had a lot of situations where she just didn't have the choice. Like she just had to raise these kids and like she had to make happen one way or the other. And there were a lot of people who helped. There were a lot of people in our lives who were very gracious and kind and giving to us as we grew up. We're in the holiday season. We're coming up on the new year. What are you most looking forward to in 2023, both in your personal life and in your business life? Yeah, so Fixer will probably turn the turn the corner to profitability and there there will be a big moment of relief. And I'm like, okay. My, my baby, she grew up, it grew up. Uh, and so uh, that'll be a big, big moment. Um, and I'm also just looking forward to enjoying people's reaction to the book without going through the writing and editing and publishing process. Like that was fun, but it'll be nice to take a little bit, a little bit of time off and, and focus and maybe have a little bit more balanced 
uh, use of time over the next year. Well, the book was wonderful. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm not just saying that, Mike. It was, uh, it was a blast. Thank you. It was a blast to read. And uh, it's in our show notes. So I, I, I urge our listeners to read it for many reasons. It's a, it's a beautiful book. And as I, as I made it the point of this podcast, it's full of great lessons in leadership and management and people and our country and business at large. So, so thank you for that gift. And I wish you and your family a really, really wonderful holiday season and 2023. Thanks. You too. I hope you have a great holiday and great 2023. That was my conversation with Mike Evans. Three lessons from this one for your business, brand, and life. The first one is have a personal definition of success that's yours and not someone else's. Mike was passionate about this. He feels the reason he was successful with Grubhub and now with Fixer is he has a very clear personal idea of what success looks like and it's not imposed on him by others. Second takeaway, he talked a lot about this, the importance of hard work and grit and perseverance. We talk about that a lot in our industry. How often do we bring that to life? Mike talked about collecting all the menus in San Francisco when his company was young, and he talked about his most inspiring person in his life is his mother, who was a single mother of four, had two jobs, and just defined herself by her hard work and her grit. Third takeaway, the best way to test a concept is to sell something. We talk an awful lot about ideas and creativity. You really don't know you have something until someone is willing to part with their hard-earned money to buy it. So early in how you test the concept, try to sell it. And bonus takeaway, courage. Have the courage to walk away from things that are not working. Mike was also passionate about that. That's a lesson for everyone. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.